Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's BudSmart Roundtable Series webinar. My name is Ashley Robinson, and I'm the editor of SpudSmart. Today, I'll be serving as your host for this webinar. Today's theme is climate change and what it means for potatoes. I'd like to take a second now just to thank BASF and McCain for partnering with us on this Roundtable Series webinar. And today's presenters are Stephanie Arnold, who is a climate change and adaptation researcher, and Ryan Barrett, Barrett, who is the research and agronomy specialist with the PEI Potato Board. In today's webinar, you'll learn about climate change impacts on potato production, reasons why adaptations have been reactive rather than proactive, how to use projected climate data to plan adaptation actions, and the role of remote sensing technologies can play in adaptation. During the presentation, you'll likely have some questions for our speakers. Please type these into the chat box at any time during the webinar, and we'll address them during the question and answer session after the presentation. Today's webinar is being recorded and will be made available at spudsmart.com following this live event. Stephanie Arnold is a climate change and adaptation researcher, as I said before. She works in the agricultural sector to navigate, she works to help the agricultural sector navigate a changing climate, develop precision irrigation workflows for farms, address inequities through climate action, and increase climate adaptation capacity on the island in PEI. And she was named a top 25 emerging thought leader by Woman in International Security Canada for her research last year. Take it away, please, Stephanie. Thanks very much. Before I start, I just wanna share that uh, my work does focus mainly on potatoes and the data I am showing might be PEI focused, but the approaches I'm discussing works in other regions and crops as well. As we all know, farming faces many pressures from different sources, but what is becoming clearer over time is how each of these are already impacted by changes in the climate. For today's presentation, I'm going to focus mainly on the production side of things, but I wanna highlight that the climate interacts deeply with the different areas beyond just what's on the field. So I came across this guide from the 60s about potato growing in the Atlantic provinces. And it talks about the, that the average daytime high used to stay well below, or used to consistently stay below 21 degrees Celsius. It also refers to rain and how an inch per week is the ideal. It's been a while since the temperatures here in the summer have stayed below 21 degrees Celsius, and I'm not even sure how often we ever got one inch per rain, one inch of rain per week throughout the growing season. But I wanted to start the presentation here um, because growers have been adapting to changes in the climate for a very long time. So why do we all of a sudden have this intense focus on climate change adaptation? Um, the most likely thing that we are focusing on is that the pace of change is accelerating. And so the speed of adaptation has to quicken like it's never had to before. If we look at temperature, and again, I'm just using data from my neck of the world, eye over the world, for the Maritimes, we're expecting to see an increase in temperatures about three and a half to four degrees by the 2050s. But this doesn't mean that our daily lows or daily average or daily highs are just going to shift up by that degree. 
in fact, we'll see a lot of changes actually through the extremes. And the extremes obviously will be different for every region. Um, for us, 25, 27 and a half um, is an extreme. And so when you think about where it used to be below 21 degrees consistently, and now when we get 27.5 here, it feels like an extreme heat wave in the summer. That's going to be the basically the norm throughout the entire summer months into the future. And on the precipitation side, we're going to expect an 8 to 10% increase. But again, it's not going to be a consistent 8 to 10% every time it rains or snows because precipitation patterns will also change in different ways. The events will become more intense. The seasonal rainfall amounts will be impacted and also the type of events will change. We are already seeing many more rain events in our winter months than in years past. So talking about intensity, a two inch per hour precipitation event used to be quite rare, one in 100 year events. But moving forward, they're gonna be more, much more common at one in 25 years. So how can we use all this climate data when there's so much uncertainty? And also when we talk about averages, it doesn't actually give us enough information to act. If I tell you a family has an average age of 17.8, it doesn't actually give you information about any particular family member. And when you apply that to climate data, same thing goes. That thick red line shows a 30-year average for precipitation. But does any one year actually follow that trend? And what happens one year? Perhaps the exact opposite will happen the next year. So even though there are ups and downs in the climate, and you can't really count on any one year to be predictive or to be overly informative, there are still ways that we can use the trend that we're seeing to make decisions today to help us plan for our adaptation actions in the future. And in fact, being able to plan and look into the future can help farmers make better investment and farm management decisions now. Before we get into some of those decisions and how we can make them, I wanna share quickly the types of impacts that we can expect to see in the industry. On the temperature side, um, we often talk about increased yield potential and that's generally expected from an extended growing season. Increased growing degree days can also open up new options in the varieties and the types of crops we plant. And while a double harvest won't be possible with potatoes, it could be possible with rotational crops. But of course, the good is balanced with the bad. For potatoes, the stages of growth that's most affected by heat stress are tuber initiation, vegetative growth, and tuber bulking. When the temperatures are high and there's more respiration, Dry matter distribution favors developing foliage, and so tuber dry matter suffer, and they can get unacceptably low, especially for the processing industry. With the warmer temperatures, pests and weeds can overwinter, become more productive, more invasive, and multiply faster. And research in Europe on the Colorado potato beetle has shown that they can generate five more generations per season if the average temperature increased by just two degrees per Celsius on average for a season. On the precipitation side, unfortunately, we don't really expect any positives that can come from the changing precipitation patterns. And because warmer weather can hold more water vapor, we will also see longer periods between rain events. And when it does rain, it will become more intense. And so you can see drought-like conditions and excessive soil moisture multiple times within the same season. This higher temperature combined with the irregular and intense rainfall can cause occasional flooding which increases the risk of bacterial infections. And this excess soil water can also increase incidences of uh, sea contamination. So knowing those basics, 
you can see a lot of uncertainty when we're talking about climate change adaptation. It's difficult to be proactive when you are not sure what to base your decisions on. Can we look at averages? How do we use trends? We're also uncertain about the types of impacts, where and when they'll happen, and how severe they'll be. And so the limitation is, well, let's wait and see. That's because you don't want to spend your limited resource too early to prepare for an impact that might not come or might come later, or is it as bad as we anticipate? There's also a concern about whether or not you would bother spending the time and money on something if it's not going to be enough when all is said and done. And there's never a guarantee that what you're doing will work. And what if you accidentally create another issue? So the approach I'm using for potatoes and PEI helps to remove some of that uncertainty. I look at what the external pressure points um, the farmers are facing, when they might trigger an actual adaptation action, and then how you can lay them out um, the different options so that you can choose and sequence them in a way that makes sense for each individual farmer. Now, this is sort of a theoretical um, outline, but I'm gonna have a concrete example after this. So just to explain that white space in the middle is the sustainable space. And I'm talking about sustainability on the farm, both from an environmental and a business point of view. The arrows you see in the top and bottom, they are the external pressures that shape and change what we consider sustainable. This could be regulations. It could be changes in the climate. It could be market forces. They constantly change what is sustainable on the farm. And everything in the middle is a choose your own adventure. You know, the black arrows is the path you take from one decision point to another. And the idea is to try to stay within that white space as much as possible and to navigate that space. When you're beginning to under-adapt, go into that orange space, you might have to monitor and evaluate and recognize, hey, I'm heading towards unsustainability here. How do we get back to the white space? And so this is very dynamic. It's tending to move. And there's no one white way. It depends on, for any particular farm, their space is different. depends on what their high-pressure areas are. And it also depends what resources, expertise, and their willingness to change. And that really dictates what your space looks like and what path you're going to take. So here's an actual example of how this would play out. If we take temperature as an example, I've listed here some adaptation options. You can change a planting date, you can add irrigation, or you can switch to heat tolerant varieties. And I put that in that order um, on purpose because changing planting dates is easiest. It doesn't cost money. And when you're talking about heat tolerant varieties, I put that later because we can be referring to a variety that hasn't yet been developed or we're referring to a variety that doesn't yet have a large market you can sell to. And that takes, in both of those instances, it takes more time to put in place. So the bigger, more difficult idea you can put later in your sequence. Now, the idea of moving the planting date is to avoid tuberization and happening when it's the hottest time of the year, over 25 degrees. In some regions of the world, this could mean delaying planting. In ours, it means moving the planting up earlier in the season. And this is where using projected climate data can come in. I pulled this data for PEI, but this um, you can do for any region. For PEI, you won't really hit, so tuberization won't really hit 25 degrees and over until about 2028. So this gives you an idea that that adaptation option will really start around the late 2020s. And how far can it go? Well, you can keep moving it up earlier and earlier and earlier in the season, but at some point you're gonna hit frost. So using the projected data for PEI, roughly around 2044 is when that adaptation alone can no longer deal with um, avoiding tuberization during the hottest time of the year. So in this way, we're able to map that adaptation option out on the map. 
And if you look at the next um, thing, which is irrigation, you can do a similar analysis and it would depend on temperatures and evapotranspiration rates in your region. It would depend on rainfall and how often drought-like periods can occur. So I just put an arbitrary, you know, from the 2030s and until about the 2060s, when you feel like perhaps at that point, no amount of irrigation can really overcome the heat stress that your crop is experiencing. And the last one about varieties, um, when it comes to building, you know, a super spud that can be more climate resilient, it might take some time to develop and to find a market for it. So here I put a date of 2040s for farmers that don't or can't irrigate when this option is needed. And depending on the specs of this new super spud uh, and when it gets developed, we can put in an end date of when we can expect it to take us before we need another new adaptation action, for example, moving to a new crop or doing or having new management practices in place. So the idea of this is that you can move from one option or one pathway to another at any time, ideally before you leave the sustainable space. And for the different concerns that we talked about, this helps to know that you can't adapt too early. Now, technically, there's no such thing as over-adaptation. It's like saying, oh, I'm too resilient. But the matter of fact is, and the reality of it is, you have only so many limited resources. So if you spend too much in one thing and you leave out options for another, then you can sort of look at it as, um, as a downside. And another way to look at this to make decisions now that can help you plan for now and the future is, let's take irrigation as example. Now, in this example, we see that irrigation can help us with 20 years of dealing with heat stress, heat stress or 30 years. What if your climate data in your region shows that it's only good for 10 years? Would you still invest in irrigation? And that would likely be different if your map shows you that this will take you to 40 or 50 years. And so knowing how long you can expect some of these actions to take place and the cost-benefit analysis of your investment now you're able to make decisions that will affect you today by considering the future. Once you get through this basic options and the rough timing onto the map, you can also add the groundwork that needs to take place beforehand to stay ahead of the curve and to stay in that white space. So how long would it take to get the water infrastructure in place if you're looking at irrigation? How long would it take to build new channels, develop new markets, identify new customers for new varieties or crops if you took the switch varieties action? And I want to impress upon everyone that this approach is not just about adaptation. It's about including climate change in your planning and also using climate data to help you make short-term and long-term decisions on the farm and across the industry. So before I segue into the, my final part of the presentation, I just want to reinforce how important farm management practices are. Um, researchers have looked at creating a new variety virtually. So this is not real. It's just a virtual potato. And they give this potato different traits to better handle climate change impacts. For example, it will lower its temperature sensitivity. So induction can take place even when temperatures are higher than what they are, they're capable of today. And what they found through the different regions, putting these virtual potatoes in different environmental regions across the world, is that through farm management practices that can manage water and nutrients more efficiently and effectively, they can still increase yield by 30 to over 100%. And this actually matches or exceeds what a virtual super variety can do. And so the idea is, even as we get new varieties that can handle future climate better, farm management practices will always be a critical piece of adaptation and sustainability. So I also do a bit of work in irrigation management and, to, and I use uh, drone and satellite data in that work. And that's because thermal imagery can detect drought stress before visible symptoms appear in your crop. 
So you take this middle field of potatoes as an example. The farmer I was working with was about to irrigate because it had been hot and dry for the last five days and it was about time. He actually apologized to me that because it had been so hot, it probably wouldn't see much difference in the data. And we were both surprised with what the thermal imagery told us, that it was still significantly warmer than the non-irrigated areas. And there was also a major difference between the different spaces within the irrigated area. So that's the circles you see in the metal field. And if we're able to really only apply the water when it is actually stressed and only in the areas that it's needed, he could save enough water to add additional fields into his irrigation program. And he was been telling me that the potatoes that aren't irrigated are only breaking even. Why does he even bother planting those acres anymore? And so by, able, by being able to use water more efficiently, he's able to have turn other fields um, into profit rather than just breaking even or risking losing some money. And lastly, I just want to show the NDVI data that shows up. You can see that the irrigated area is obviously a lot more healthy and also some health differences within the irrigated areas. And right now, drone data collection is still a large part of this research, even though it is really time consuming, but satellite does have a role to play. You can collect so much more data much quicker, but cloud cover is still a big issue. And that's why our team here is working on using both satellite and drone imagery to supplement other types of data that we collect on the farm to come up with a precision irrigation workflow to help our farmers know not just to detect when the soils need water, but also whether or not the crops are stressed or not. Thank you. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you so much there, Stephanie. That was really interesting. And our next presenter is Ryan Barrett, Research and Agronomy Specialist with the PEI Potato Board. Ryan coordinates local and national research projects with a number of different partners, as well as conducting on-farm research trials with a number of PEI potato growers in his role with the board. Recent areas of his research have focused on including cover crops, use of soil building and disease suppressive crops and potato rotations, managing potato early dying complex, and management of physiological age of seed. Ryan graduated with Bachelor of Science degree in agriculture from the Dalhousie University and a Master of Science degree from the University of Guelph. He has worked with the PEI Potato Board since 2012 after previously working in the purebred cattle, dairy cattle industry. Ryan continues to be involved in his family's dairy farm. He is a professional agrologist and serves as the vice president of the PEI Institute of Agrologists. He is also a certified crop advisor for the Atlantic provinces. Take it away, please, Ryan. Thanks a lot, um, Ashley. Uh, thanks for having me today. So uh, I'm going to focus primarily uh, on um, why climate change uh, should matter to potato farmers and uh, why we're seeing some um, emphasis on climate resiliency and, uh, and, and response to climate change in our research and our agronomy programs here in Prince Edward Island. So for those that uh, maybe don't know as much about growing potatoes in PEI, um, we have a, mostly a sandy loam soil. Um, we get normally around 1,100 millimeters of annual precipitation, uh, which most on an average year uh, is enough to grow a, a, a good crop of potatoes. But as Stephanie just mentioned, sometimes those averages don't come out at the times that you want them. Um, we have the largest acreage of potatoes in Canada. 
Uh, our industry is fairly heavily regulated here in terms of uh, we have crop rotation legislation and enhanced buffer zones, uh, all sorts of regulations around what fields can be planted to potatoes, and now um, so a new program around soil health monitoring uh, to, to obtain water permits for irrigation. Most potatoes are in a three or four year rotation. There are some that are in a some that are in a little bit shorter rotation that are uh, have management plans, some that are in longer. Uh, and as I noted, most of the potato production in PEI is rain fed. So climate change is a present reality. And some of this will be a, you know, a rehash of what uh, Stephanie shared. But, you know, of course, we're we are seeing, especially here in the Atlantic Northeast and in Prince Edward Island, we're seeing increased heavy rainfall events more frequent periods of drought, especially, you know, late July, early August, increased daily uh, temperatures, as, as uh, Stephanie shared, changing precipitation patterns, um, a lack of frost during the winter, unpredictable early and late frost events, um, just, just different than, we've, than the pattern of what we've seen, you know, what our fathers and grandfathers saw when they were growing potatoes. And what impact does this have on potato production? So, of course, those heavy rainfall events, they can drown out potatoes that are already up and growing. They can cause soil erosion, um, surface and groundwater contamination. And that, by that, I mean primarily with uh, nitrates and phosphates and runoff from fertilizer. With, the la with lack of precipitation, of course, you get that immediate stress on plants uh, under rain-fed fields where, you know, there's just not enough rain, not enough moisture to, to properly grow that, those potatoes. Um, and then, you know, down the road, uh, it's a lack of recharge for groundwater and surface water um, that may be needed for irrigation. So, um, you know, if we have a year with no rain and no snow or very little, um, not only is that a problem this year, but it can be a problem later on as well. And then, of course, with the increasing temperatures, Stephanie mentioned, you know, the impact on the growth cycle and tuberization. We, I know, you know, talking to some growers in Alberta this year, the really hot weather at, you know, at that tuber initiation resulted in a lot of uh, a lot of plants just dropping their first set of tubers. And we've seen that here in PEI before as well. And that, you know, really limits yield in certain varieties. And then, of course, things like internal tuber defects, things that normally we haven't faced too much in Canada, but in certain varieties or uh, certain areas, you know, there can be all sorts of internal net necrosis and things that, that, you know, show up more with high soil temperatures. Those changing precipitation patterns, you know, sometimes it's as simple as too much rain in the spring. It makes it hard to get on the land in the spring and get things prepared, and that slows down, you know, planting dates. Um, because you don't want to get, you know, you don't want to be traveling on ground that's not fit and compacting soil, all those sorts of things. Too much rain in the fall. We've seen that in PEI. We've seen that in Manitoba. We've seen that in other places where too much rain and too much precipitation led to, you know, fields being abandoned and acres being abandoned and not harvested in the fall. Too much rain at any time can cause nitrate leaching, whether that's you know, too much rain during the growing season and it leaches nitrate out at the time when it can be used or after, you know, after harvest when there's no crop there and we're just losing nitrogen from the system. And not only is that a waste, you know, there's, a, you know, nitrogen that's being paid for is just being lost to the system, but it's also an environmental contaminant. 
we find that our weather forecasting and PEI seems to be increasingly unreliable. Um, and through that, you know, we, we've identified we need to have more weather stations. We need to have a PEI specific radar. Uh, you know, these are things that would help. The School of Climate Change at UPEI has been a great help in terms of, you know, coming up with a project to put up more uh, a denser network of local weather stations in PEI. That's still very much in progress, but you know, we need to we need to have more data to be able to make better uh, better forecasts. And then, you know, lack of frost in the winter. What impact does that have? So, of course, that for certain insects that can increase insect pressure. We uh, we've we've seen maybe a growth of wireworm in in a few fields this year where people weren't expecting it, and I think partly that's due to uh, uh, a very mild winter last year. You know, uh, we can see increased generations of Colorado potato beetle. Corn borer is something that we're seeing a bit more in eastern Canada in the last little while, and of course in those you know um, in a place like Prince Edward Island uh, and in potato production. Uh, we are able to mitigate a bit of soil compaction through uh, the fact that we have frost in the winter and 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 frost thaw cycles. Um, if we don't have a lot of those frost cycles, uh, it, it is a natural compaction buster that we don't have. So, how can farmers respond? What what? How do we take you know use our agency uh, to to respond to the challenges of climate change? Well, firstly, we can do our part to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and be part of the solution. And I think all Canadians are going to be asked to be part of that solution, but also that's improving the resiliency of our farms to that changing climate. And, and that's mostly what I'm going to focus the rest of my presentation on. Touching on the reducing greenhouse gas emissions, one thing that we've learned over the last number of years is that reducing nitrous oxide emissions uh, is probably one of the major ways that farmers can uh, can reduce their impact on um, on the environment and re reduce their impact on climate change. And nitrous oxide has is uh, many times more uh, serious as a greenhouse gas uh, than carbon dioxide. Uh, and so, doing what we can to reduce nitrous oxide by whether it be reducing nitrogen or uh, using a protected nitrogen source uh, like, uh, say, ESN or or SuperU or Agritain, something that maybe has a more of a slow release process to it. Um, maybe it's also, um, you know, using planting a cover crop uh, to make sure that that's, you know, soaking up and using uh, sequestering some of that nitrogen rather than having it lost uh, to the system. Then it's also things like converting non-productive land or sensitive areas to permanent grass or permanent trees, which sequesters carbon, reducing tillage passes, which not only reduces fuel consumption, uh, but also carbon release from the soil. So it's a kind of a double whammy. Manage, you know, changing how we manage our manure and our composts to again, prevent release of methane, prevent release of nitrous oxide and carbon dioxide. These are all examples of things where I think many farms can be involved in being part of that solution. But when it comes to building resiliency, there's a lot of parts to this, and this is a lot of how, how an individual farm can respond uh, in terms of making their farm, I say, climate change uh, you know, resilient. And so 
one big one is improving soil organic matter. So, you know, it's be it's not it's not news to I think anybody on here that increasing the organic matter level of our soil is associated with increasing the water holding capacity, helps to buffer changes in soil temperature and keep soil cooler. Uh, it can help foster a healthy microbiome that suppresses disease and cycles nutrients. And of course, it sequesters carbon, as I mentioned before. By building soil health, uh, what are we doing to, to do that in Prince of Rhode Island? What are we doing that? How are we approaching that in, in potato production? So we're evaluating different crops and different mixtures that maximize root growth uh, and, uh, and maximize uh, carbon sequestration. We're evaluating crops and mixtures that feed the soil uh, and, and build that soil organic matter while at the same time suppressing diseases that are many of which are soil borne. And then we're also evaluating crops and mixtures that naturally break up soil compaction without the need for deep tillage. So that can be things like daikon radishes or uh, alfalfa crops that are have you know deep tap roots that can help to break up the soil. Cover cropping, I think, is a big way that we can in introduce more resiliency in our systems. Not only do they reduce soil erosion, but they also reduce nitrate leaching and, and nitrous oxide emissions. So that retains that nitrogen for the next year, which means that hopefully we can reduce the amount of applied nitrogen that we have to apply for the next, uh, for the next crop. And by maximizing the amount of time that we have a living plant with living roots present in the soil, all of the most recent research all indicates that that is the best and fastest way to build soil organic matter. It matters much more how much of, how much of the year your field is green and how much of the how much root mass you have than how much above ground you know trash or biomass you have left. So to this end, um, we're, we've been doing a lot of work here the last few years in PEI, looking at cover cropping before potatoes. So historically, a lot of people would do their fall tillage here in the fall, but a lot of those fields would be bare in the winter time. Um, the, the benefit of, of breaking down sod and making it, you know, getting those fields more quick, uh, more, uh, you know, easily to break up and work uh, and get prepared for potatoes in the spring, but there's a great erosion risk with that. And it also, I think long-term has had an effect on soil organic matter and soil health. So what we've been looking at here and what we've been doing some research with growers on is planting cover crops and mixes that established quickly in the fall after tillage, but that don't hinder land preparation in the spring. So we're looking at things like spring cereals, like barley and oats. We're looking at brassicas like radish and mustard winter peas and other crops that, and, and mixtures of these crops that can be, you know, a field that was, that's been in a, say a hay sod or something uh, can be tilled in August, late August, early September, and then planted with this cover crop, the co cover crop establishes well, and then, um, you know, mostly dies out over the winter, but still retains uh, some of those nutrients till the next year. And then uh, we have a uh, you know, we have soil that's protected over the winter time, and uh, but we're not slowing down getting that field prepared for potatoes in the spring. Uh, our first year of trials uh, that we completed last year um, seemed to show a trend over a number of fields of somewhere around 2,500 weight an acre increase in potato yield 
following a cover crop versus a no cover check. So that's an encouraging sign as well. So not only is there you know, long-term benefits to the health of your field and the health of your soil, but there may also be short-term benefits uh, to your potato yield, which help to pay for doing that cover cropping. Of course, we also are always looking at things like new varieties, and Stephanie mentioned this a little bit. So, you know, here in PEI, but, you know, across Canada, all of the, uh, you know, many of the potato producing provinces are doing variety trials. And many of these are focused on things like drought resistance and heat tolerance and disease resistance and ways that these varieties may be better adapted to a changed climate. And of course, here in PEI, you know, we're looking at can we develop and evaluate varieties that maybe are a shorter season variety that's more adapted to Canada, more adapted to a, a, a production system in PEI that which, you know, we plant a little bit later. We don't have a, you know, <laughs> starts turning poor weather at the end of October. How do we how do we maximize that uh, that time frame? Also, nutrient and water use efficiency, those are big things as well. And while at the same time, making sure that these varieties that we pick are not just agronomically successful, but also meet the needs of the consumer. So they have, they meet those taste profiles, they, they, they're attractive to consumers. Then there's things like uh, pest and disease monitoring. We, we see that with climate change, that there's been changes in how, you know, the, we, we talked a little bit about some of the, you know, um, insects that maybe have increased generations or or changes in adaptation so the same goes for disease uh you know uh, fungal diseases that maybe have increased sporulation or that maybe have you know maybe we may find them in areas that we didn't find them before so here in pei but i know all across canada there are uh, groups that are looking at things like spore trapping um, decision support tools um, updating growing degree day models and monitoring, you know, insect life cycles and emergence and using this information to help growers make, make decisions about when do they need to spray? Do they need to spray at all? What's the ideal spray interval? And can that, you know, uh, can we better respond to when the risk is higher and when the risk is low or non-existent or next to non-existent, can people save money by not having to apply crop protectants when they don't need to? Then of course, there's looking at you know the increasing amount of tools with precision agriculture. And uh, Stephanie mentioned this quite a bit already with her work that she's doing with growers on, uh, on irrigation management and those sorts of things. But can we use site-specific maps with data, with multiple data sources to identify parts of the field that are continually challenged, develop, identify the parts of the field that you know are always the best performing and be able to use our um, use our use that information to manage those fields more properly. So, you know, if there's a consistently strong performing part of the field, maybe we push it a little bit harder. Is there a, a, a weaker part of the field that with, you know, with anticipated changes in climate, we think may even be more challenged? Do we consider removing it from production or at the very least, you know, changing our, our sort of our goals for what we expect out of that field and maybe changing our fertility rates or seeding rates appropriately. So I think there is quite a bit of that being done here as well. I know there's, that's being done in other provinces and other commodities. And uh, we're definitely seeing, you know, the increasing use of these tools to, to better, uh, you know, um, manage our fields on a more site-specific basis rather than just on a blanket basis. And how do we translate that research 
and the and the different trials that we do into day to day practice. So I, I we're seeing a really a strong interest in these type of uh, this type of work here in Prince Edward Island. Um, we've seen a lot of growers take practices that show merit in the like, small scale trials and implement them on a field scale in partnership with you know people like myself and uh, people you know people that work for the Department of Agriculture, other agronomists, other researchers, Agriculture Canada. We have a living labs program here in PEI where we've been doing quite a few trials uh, in this way. But I would say what's really important when we're when we're doing these trials and identifying these trials is that we have to make them manageable and we have to have them reason relatively easy to implement and to set up. And we can't necessarily always be focused on trying to get the maximum amount of data because sometimes that's unrealistic. So it's often focusing on what are the true key indicators. And so those are things like crop yield and quality, organic matter, soil health metrics from soil health testing, soil nitrates, you know, ground cover, erosion control metrics, things that are reasonably easy to, to measure uh, and that can be used a bit of, as proxies or as you know, indicators for other, for other traits. So with that, uh, that kind of gives you a bit of a run through of some of the ways that I think that uh, PEI growers are addressing you know, climate change adaptation and climate change resilience, and maybe how we're looking at it as a, as a board as well. Uh, I welcome any questions. You can contact me at any of the ways that you see there, or you can uh, feel free to ask some questions in the chat here. Thanks, Ryan. Great job to both yourself and Stephanie on the presentations. And as mentioned, if you have any questions for our presenters, please type them in the chat now. And we're going to start the question and answer session. And first off, we have a question from Vikram Bish, and he's asking about uh, tile drainage when we are experiencing intense rains. Could that be another consideration? And I think this was from during Stephanie's presentation. Yeah, and I've seen, or I've heard farmers discuss that almost in a reactive way. Whenever we have a really dry season um, over the winter, we talk about maybe we should really look into expanding or starting with irrigation. And we have a really wet season, particularly a harvest season, we'll hear. Oh, we really, really got to get on getting some tile drainage. So yes, tile drainage definitely is one of those adaptation options for intense rain events. And I know that um, there are there is research being done to integrate sort of the dry periods and the wet periods better so that the tile drainage and the irrigation are talking to each other and working together. Because as I've said, in one season, you can experience both multiple times throughout the season. Ryan, do you have anything to add yourself? Have you heard anything about this? Yeah, there is there is definitely an increased interest in tile drainage here, uh, and there has been some more uh, tile drainage going in. One thing I would mention is that uh, tile drainage uh, sometimes is seen as the answer when more of the answer uh, can be improvements in soil health and reductions in compaction. Um, investing a lot of money in tile drainage, which in tile drainage is a very expensive process, um, maybe sort of treating a symptom rather than a than a root cause in some cases. There are fields that definitely need to be tiled. Um, I know, you know my family farms on some land in, in Western PEI, some of which that, you know, is high organic matter, you know, doesn't not in potato rotation, you know, very strong soil health, but often you can't get on it until June. And it's because it's, you know, it's wet land and it's land that probably would be a candidate for tile drainage. There are other fields which, you know, if, if there were improvements to, uh, fight compaction, if there were improvements to traffic on those fields, 
um, they may not require tile drainage. And so I think that's it's going to be very field by field and uh, and identifying you know what's what is uh, more important. Thank you, Ryan. And our next question is from uh, Victor Kolovev, and I'm sorry for, I'm sure, mispronouncing your name wrong. And I think this is in regards to uh, when we're talking about new varieties. Um, and he and he asked, what do you think of real TPS potato seeds? So true potato seed, um, there, there's definitely more research on happening on that all the time. Having true potato seed working on a commercial basis in Canada will be challenging um, based on the, sh the shortness of our growing season. I think that there's a lot of interest in using TPS for uh, as part of a breeding program, um, but the the shortness of our <laughs> the shortness of our uh, growing season um, it, it probably does make that uh, a bit more of a challenging more challenging to implement here. Thanks. And uh, Stephanie, do you want to add anything? No, that was great. Okay, perfect. And next question is from Patrick O'Neill. And I think this was from your presentation, uh, during your presentation, Stephanie, and it's, is the temperature threshold of 25 degrees Celsius a soil temp or air temperature? Yeah, when I talked about the 25, when it begins to affect tuberization, um, from the research, it is air temperature they're talking about. But I'm glad you brought it up because I don't think I stressed enough that um, I said at the beginning I used PEI data and it's something that can be used more broadly in different regions because the general approach, whether you have a different variety, could have different thresholds and obviously you have different climate projections for different regions. And so the idea is, you know, if something that you're using is 28 degrees, for example, then you'll insert that into the adaptation planning that you look at. But from that research to answer that question specifically, it is air temperature. Thank you, Stephanie. And our next question is from Dave Hyde, and he's asking, are using aggressive rates of fertilizer on cover crops to maintain the fertility levels going into potatoes? And uh, that was from your presentation, I'm pretty sure, Ryan. Right. So for the most part, uh, cover crops, if, if I'm talking about a fall cover crop that's only being planted, say, after the end of August and, to, and, and, and into the fall season, almost all of those cover crops are not fertilized because one of the main goals of those fertile, uh, cover crops is to um, hold and sequester nutrients and carry them over to the next year. So um, there's been work before done in Prince Edward Island where, you know, they applied nitrogen to cover crops and those cover crops, they sucked up the nitrogen that was in the soil to begin with, um, but the rest of that nitrogen didn't, didn't substantially increase the biomass of cover crop and it didn't increase the amount of nitrogen that was carried over to the next year. So I think uh, really for when I talk about cover crops, most of the time I'm talking about fall cover crops. And so most of the time, you know, we're, we're looking at those as a, as a holding nutrients rather than fertilizing them more. If you're talking about more of a full season uh, cover crop, so you're looking at, say, a disease suppressive crop that's going to be grown during the year or maybe double cropping, say mustard or buckwheat or or Sudan grass or something, maybe relay cropping because you're trying to fight you know, disease and you're also trying to help with soil health. Some of those crops may require uh, a bit more uh, fertilization and specifically for certain nutrients. So 
things like um, you know mustard. If you're doing a biofumigation with mustard, uh, you require a, a, you know a significant amount of nitrogen, but also specifically sulfur uh, to get the the buildup of those glucosinolate compounds that are needed uh, for biofumigation. Um, for other cover crops or for other crops, like if you're growing hay crops like alfalfa, they require more calcium, they require more potash. So it's important to, to look at the agronomy when you're looking at those cover crops and choosing what crops to put in those fields. Um, but for just a fall cover crop, we're generally not looking at additional fertilization. Thanks, Ryan. And now we have a question from, and I'm sorry if I pronounced your name wrong, William Dolman. And he's asking, has there been a look into light intensity on varieties and how this has an effect on the plants? I'll throw that out to either of you. <laughs> well, I know that there has been quite a bit of work done on light intensity by some researchers over in uh, the United Kingdom and in Europe, and particularly where they're able to usually plant in March and April. So they'll be getting towards peak biomass at the time of peak sunlight around the 21st of June, right? Um, and, and that can be the case in many parts of the United States as well. In Canada, you know, there's very few parts of Canada where we're at peak biomass or, or peak leaf area coverage at that time, you know, late June, early July. And PEI, a lot of times we don't get to that peak biomass till later in July. So it's harder to capitalize on the sort of that maximum light intensity. Um, one thing I can mention too is there's, I know there's quite a few growers in Western Canada that remarked to me this year that, you know, they, they had a, a, a drag on their yield because of the amount of smoke in the air, uh, in Western Canada this year due to the fires in, in British Columbia and, and the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, that amount of smoke, you know, filtered some of the sunlight and that had an impact on yield and not just in potatoes, but in grain and corn and other things as well. So, you know, that's something if we see more, if we see more fires in, you know, with a changing climate and we have, you know, years with lots of smoke that's blocking out the sun, um, that can have a downward impact on, on yield as well. Thank you, Ryan. And Stephanie, would you like to add anything to that? Just very quickly, when I talked about the, the virtual potatoes that the researchers built and tested different traits, um, sensitivity to the photo period was one of them. So be, with, between what Ryan has, has mentioned and also what the research researchers are looking at, it does sound like it's something as a trait that they're trying to maximize production uh, out of the potato using that trait. Thank you. And uh, well, that's all we have time for today. And I'd like to once again, thank our speakers, Stephanie and Ryan for joining us. And I would also like to once again, thank our sponsors, BASF and McCain for making this webinar possible. And a big thank you goes out to everyone for participating. I hope you have found this information valuable. Again, a recording of this webinar will be made available on spudsmart.com shortly after the end of this webinar. Thanks again, and we hope you all have a wonderful day.